1: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today.
2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books and Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In her scintillating new book, The Beauty of the Huri, Heavenly Virgin's Feminine Ideals, Narina Rustumji presents a fascinating and multi-layered intellectual and cultural history of the category of the Huri, and the multiple ideological projects in which it has been inserted over time and space. Nimbly moving between a vast range of discursive theatres, including Western Islamophobic representations of the Hudi in the post 911 context, early modern and modern French and English literature, pre modern Muslim intellectual traditions, and popular preachers on the internet today. Rustumji shows the complexity of this category and its unavailability for a canonical definition. The beauty of the huri is intellectual history at its best that combines philological rigor with astute theoretical reflection. And all this Rustumji accomplishes in prose, the delightfulness of which competes fiercely with its lucidity. Here now is my conversation with Professor Narina Rustumji. Hello, Narina. How are you doing? Uh, wonderful to have you on uh, the New Books Network, uh, or to talk about this really incredible and wonderful uh, new book uh, that I was very excited to read and really learned a lot from. And looking forward to this uh, uh, conversation uh, about it, this much-anticipated book, really, that is finally out. And it's really a thrill to have read it. Um, uh, before we go into specific aspects of the book, Narina, we have a tradition on the New Books Network, uh, on new books in Islamic studies that our first question is always uh, biographical. And very broadly speaking, if you could give a sense to our listeners about how you became a scholar of Islam and uh, Muslim societies.
0: Well, first of all, Sher Ali, thank you so much for your invitation and for reading the book and for really opening up this conversation. I'm, I'm looking forward to being in conversation with you. You are such a an astute reader. And so I am really looking forward to hearing um, what you have to say as well. So I came to the history of Islamic society and Islamic studies by way of studying with two remarkable historians. Uh, The first is Denise Spellberg, who is an exquisite intellectual historian who has forged new directions of study. And what she really was able to impart to me was the the richness of the primary sources and how you have to mine very deep to understand even the smallest phrases. And it's that kind of intellectual history um, as a foundation uh, that I learned from her. And the second is Dick Bullitt, who um, has this extraordinary searching, creative mind, um, is a social historian who's embraced so many different new methodologies he has a way of asking the big questions, but writing in a kind of lightness and humor. And I've, I've long admired uh, the way that he has communicated his ideas.
2: Let's uh, go chronologically in terms of the unfolding of this, of this book. The remarkable aspect of this book is the way how you move between very different set of, uh, I guess, settings, archives, texts, um, uh, both in terms of genre, more sort of traditional texts and online media etc but also between different settings ranging from contemporary America to 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century France and the U.S. and then of course Muslim intellectual history in the pre-modern period. You begin the book in the present context or rather I would say the post 9-11 context with a very interesting and really captivating uh, analysis of uh, one of the letters, supposed alleged letters of one of the uh, 9-11 um, hijackers, Muhammad Atta, and the mention of the Huri there. And you connect that to this larger sort of theme of that chapter, which is um, ways in which this category of the Huri became mobilized in American popular media and culture in the post-9-11 context. So if you could just speak a bit about some key threads of how that happened, and this other sort of uh, um, uh, um uh, perception about this category of the huri that it actually really means uh, grapes and it has been sort of misunderstood by uh, muslims of all varieties etc so how did this this whole theory of the white grapes etc also become part of this american popular uh, culture discourse
0: Yes, thanks for that question. You know, and it is an important one because the project, um, you know, initially I developed it in relation to what I was seeing in American popular media. And what I saw after September 11th is mention of the Huri became a kind of rebuttal to the letter that was published, this purported letter of Muhammad Atta, uh, and also a rebuttal to the perception of the aims of the 9 11. Hijackers and, and that rebuttal was that the reward of these pure female companions or virgins of paradise was really an, kind of an absurd way to look at reward in terms of religion. And um, it was a, a way to kind of denigrate um, the, the, the perceptions of the hijackers, but also of uh, the religion of Islam. What I thought that was so interesting about those kinds of rebuttals, and these took place in kind of blogs and chats, they tended to be dark, uh, very absurd, um, oftentimes bitter, is that they really drew on what I saw was a pre-existing medieval polemic about about the material and spiritual world and the possibility of having sexual relations in paradise. So that is how the cor- Huri the was initially mobilized. And that's not to say that the Huri was not, there wasn't an awareness of the Huri before 9-11, but it got amplified in, in uh, the social media space um, in particularly intense ways. And that's what really interested me is how did Americans understand this category and how did the Huri enter the American vocabulary? Um, one interesting dimension of that is, um, is is a book that was published um, by an author writing under the pseudonym Christoph Luxemburg. It was in German, um, which you know suggested a very different uh, methodology for looking at the Quran. And in one of the chapters, each of the chapters is quite extraordinary, um, extraordinary in a kind of um, really uh, strange methodology. One of the chapters regarded the Huri. Where the argument in the book was that the Huris are, in fact, not these feminine companions, but should be understood etymologically, drawing on um, uh, pre existing Aramaic and Syriac sources um, to be white grapes. And so, what's fascinating about this work is it was published in German in 2000, it was translated in English in 2007. But by 2002, it was commonly referenced in American uh, news media. And the reason why is in 2002, um, the polemicist Ibn Warraq wrote an article, Virgins, What Virgins? in The Guardian, where he discussed this theory about uh, the white grape and, um, and had his own kind of articulations of that rebuttal. Um, not so. The rebuttal was not just that the 9/11 hijackers, you know, um, were were um, you know thought they were going to receive this version and versions, and that itself has uh, kind of a, a false claim to it. But that in fact, because Muslim societies did not have, according to him, the exercise of scriptural interpretation. Um, Muslims were not aware that, in fact, there are no female companions or virgins, but instead they are white grapes. And that itself started a kind of another type of um, rebuttal in, in American letters, um, short stories, blogs, different chat rooms about what the hijackers really received was Uh, grapes or um, what it became known as, as a a box of raisins. And it's this precise point of the grape-raisin confusion that I realized that the theory itself had become so accepted and entrenched in the understanding of this very ambiguous Islamic concept that it was worth um, kind of unpackaging how that process took place. And that process really took place through media.
2: Now, um, backing off from the current moment to uh, sort of the early modern and modern context, and uh, you do some very exquisite readings of um, English and French literature of different kinds, poetry, fiction, um, etc. And you argue, sort of, the main argument that you make is that the figure of the Huri, uh, in some ways, does two things. One is it sort of tries to establish the the backwardness or the kind of uh, misogyny and the barbaricness of uh, the Muslim, which basically at this point is the Turk uh, represented by the Ottoman Empire. And the other thing that it does, which was a very interesting argument, which I want you to speak a bit more about, um, is that it was connected to certain notions of ideal femininity and feminine purity, which was given a universalized uh, form. Uh, So in some ways, the Huri became a way of... uh, uh, a western articulation of what femininity and feminine purity should look like in the modern period uh, perhaps I, I know you give a m- multiple examples in the book so this might be a bit unfair but perhaps if you could take a couple of examples to uh, share with our listeners a bit this uh, part of your argument of the huri as a uh, as an understanding of ideal femininity and feminine purity in modern english and uh, french uh, uh, literature
0: um, yes, uh, you know, absolutely. there are plenty of examples, and it's the it's you know, the, and they are so rich. and it's really the point in my own research that I realized that I had a book and not just something to say about nine eleven. And that is when you look at the where you have these kind of multiplicities that come through the literature. And as you mentioned, there is, um, you know, definitely a, a narrative and an explanation about the houri reinforces this uh, vision that Islam is um, over-sexualized and that um, Muslim men can be kind of oppressors. And that continues. Um, yet what really surprised me was seeing the wide array of how the houri was used. And, you know, the first credit we need to give that to, um, the actual term huri. the credit needs to go to this French traveler de Loire, who in um, 1640 is um, in Istanbul in the Ottoman Empire. He, he uh, leaves from Marseille and he, and he writes these letters that get published in 1654. And this 1640 letter is where he actually mentions huri as a term. Um, in relation to the Turkish men who do not appreciate their charming wives um, and instead you know, talk about these, these female beauties. And what's significant about these letters is it takes the Huri outside of the earlier theological text into what I would call a kind of lived historical space that is uh, a European traveler interacting with people Learning from them and in a kind of anthropological way of reporting, um, reporting about them. So from that introduction in the 1650s, in the next um, in the next century, century and a half, you start to see the introduction of huri in literature, and this is very much falling in line with many of the translation projects and other terms that are coming through um, in English as well, and so with the letters of Horace Walpole you have in 19 uh, sorry 1743 he makes the first kind of reference to Horries in English in this kind of a ridiculous parody of a letter and in 1945 in another letter refers to Lady Granville as being as handsome as the Horries and it's that reference that made me pause and investigate further because he wasn't just drawing upon this idea of uh, an expanding English world that was widening in its own outlook and drawing upon you know other locales and vocabularies to complement this particular um, this particular noblewoman. But what he was doing was setting up a kind of structure where Huri became not just an artifact, but something that was more deeply rooted into the model. One of the best places um, to see the, how that model expands is um, in Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe um, in 1820, where we, am, you know, where we encounter Rebecca, who is Jewish. Um, but is referred to as a Huri a few times in the text and is so captivating in her beauty that the Templar Brian de bois cannot stop himself from falling in love with her. Um, So you see these references irrespective of religion, irrespective of station, that is to say, you know, nobility versus a woman who is not as entitled. Um, But I think the most... um, for the purposes just of our discussion today, the most interesting place is in Jane Eyre. So Charlotte Bronte in Jane Eyre um, really does refer to kind of larger issues about empire, uh, uh, patriarchy, polygamy through the story of Rochester and his governess Jane Eyre. And In one of the passages, um, when Rochester is, you know, riding this carriage back with Jane Eyre, um, they had gone to town to go shopping so that she could buy fabrics for their upcoming wedding. And Jane Eyre kept on, um, you know, Jane Eyre, who is austere, she is principled. She kept on kind of... um, being attracted by these austere, simple fabrics. And he kept on wanting to show her the like satins and the silks and all the colors. And in this exchange, this very flirtatious exchange as he's trying to hold her hand, he makes this reference um, to the Huris and her as you know possibly part of this. And she has a very sharp rebuke. And what you see in this exchange as gets teased out, I think, in in many points in English literature are competing models of what a Christian purity would look like for women. On one hand, you have this kind of principled modesty that is not aligned with a kind of cosmopolitan luxury. Um, And that would be represented by Jane Eyre, plain and simple, that's who Jane is. But Rochester is forwarding something else, which is the possibility of a heroine who is equally principled, but embraces the cosmopolitanism that is part of this widening world for the English. And so this is how the Huri becomes this kind of universalized notion of femininity and feminine purity, is it's a purity that accords with Christian values, but it's one that can embrace the kind of material um, the material gains of a widening empire. And, and that kind of tension, you see that also in American monthly magazines where there are references um, to American ladies who are Hori's. There are poems about Hori's. And it's, I think, very much in accord with this idea of how to maintain the purity, but also the allure that may have been um, recognized as being the allure, uh, or, or the allure that was recognized as being attractive about other places and other empires.
2: Now let's move to the other uh, sort of, um, um, I guess, way in which the, this category of the Huri gets mobilized. And one of the more most interesting moments in this book was when you talk about the uh, critique of um, uh, what are seen as overly sensual conceptions of the afterworld in Islam that we find in Latin Christendom, uh, in terms of Christian writers writing about the afterworld and finding it a bit too sensual in Islam, could you speak a bit about that uh, that intellectual trend and how might that have informed later European attitudes towards the houri as a symbol of you know Muslim male oppression or overly sensual uh, sort of sexualities of Muslim male subjects, etc.
0: Yeah that you know that is um that vision of the huri and particularly of the islamic afterlife or islamic afterworld is is uh, so deeply rooted and and in fact i think as i suggested before it never really goes away it's just one kind of vision about this very different um, cosmology and that cosmology is really based in christian um, understandings of the division between the material and the spiritual world. So, in the, you know, Christian eschatology, the there there is an afterlife. Um, there isn't as developed an afterworld, and what I mean by that is that the the future world is one that is understood as its proximity to the divine. Um, it has this kind of spiritual component to it, and it does not—it's um, not as populated with material realities or even the kinds of social relations you see in other um, other eschatologies. By contrast, what we see in the kind of Islamic eschatology is that you not only have an afterlife where you have relations with other people. Uh, there's the ability to meet ancestors, meet progeny. But that it is articulated through the terms of a material world. So there is a, uh, you know, good stuff, textiles, uh, jewelry, uh, food, drink, and in that larger landscape, um, you have the the capacity to have sexual relations, which is um, part of um, part of the Islamic traditions of eschatology. But the also, part of the tradition that is incredibly sensational for theologians of Latin Christendom, you know, on on two counts. The first is that that there is this kind of material dimension to perfect cosmology, but the second is um, just the kind of um, very plain and direct capacity for uh, for sexuality, um, which becomes. Kind of uh, abhorrent, disgusting in these texts, almost a kind of taboo. And the way that you see this play out in the theological text is the kind of reference to the perpetual virgins, um, the focus on Muhammad as a prophet and his um, kind of sexual appetites. But you also see it in, for example, the texts like Marco Polo, who, in talking about the Assassins you know, refers to these beautiful women in paradise. In the tales of Prester John in the 14th century, you really have this discussion of uh, the the invocation of perpetual virgins. And you see it, um, you know, as late as Lady Mary Montague, who in the Ottoman Empire, even though she's, you know, writing in the mid to late 1700s, is, you know, referring to these kind of celestial beauties. So this is the kind of difference and the tension that having um, replicating and transforming the earthly world into cosmic perfection is something that is just not within the framework of of Latin Christendom and the kind of intellectual um, history that's part of it.
2: Now let's move to another major segment of this book, which of course is on um, uh, understandings of uh, uh, Hur, Ayn, uh, the concept which gets uh, represented as the Huri later in English uh, in the Muslim intellectual traditions, especially in the pre modern period. Uh, the thing that I found quite interesting about this segment of your book is uh, how conceptions of this con- concept of the Huri uh, shift uh, as we shift from different genres, uh, from the Quran to Quran commentaries to the Hadith to other Muslim intellectual traditions, uh, sort of other traditions of the Muslim humanities, one might say um um i was wondering if you could talk a bit about how how these understandings shift from genre to genre how it gets more expansive and how different sort of genres have their own way of um, understanding and presenting uh, this particular category
0: yes it's a great question and and it's it's um and it's an important question because i think that you know the 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 modest place to start and to end is to realize that there is no one singular meaning of the houri, even though that is the question that comes up in all the li- all the literature, which is what are what is a houri and what are her characteristics. Um, but instead, what we see are really multiple meanings and multiple frameworks through different literatures. So to start with um, in the Quranic verses, I find that the Huri is an incredibly an ambiguous reward. And it is not as this chapter is called a reward, it's not called the reward. Um, you know, I think it's important to recognize that the Huri is one of many rewards. And the ambiguity is there in the verses where you don't necessarily even have a clear sense of an actor. Um, they take place often, these verses are in the context of banquet settings. Um, they invoke questions of, or they invoke the capacity of purity. And they also um, sometimes um, are paired with these male uh, servants as well. But in these ambiguous um, verses, you, you, or because of the ambiguous verses, you really have a kind of a grappling with this very ambiguous and evocative reward. And you see that in the commentaries that try to address the terminology of the Huri, try to clarify what the Huri is in relation to women, what the Huri is in relation to um, color. You know, know, I'm always struck by the discussions about the color of an eggshell. So you have, even though this kind of dominant understanding of the Huri as a female companion who is designated for a male believer in paradise, in the Quran and the commentaries, that, that ambiguity is still kind of built within um, within the terminology. What happens, I think what's interesting in the Hadith, and, and here the timeframes are, are you know, paralleling the commentaries as well, is you have a greater um, description that comes um, along with the Huri, including a description in terms of the senses as well as the the products of the houri, what she's made of, um, you know, um, what are the what is the the jewelry, what kinds of brocade, um, how what her body is is physically made of, which is these kind of opulent materials. By the time you have really in the eight hundreds onwards, what I call these eschatological manuals, and what I mean by that is kind of small narratives. That take traditions of the, the hadith but put them within a narrative form and really form these kind of early tours of paradise. The Huri becomes a kind of prime figure in, in paradise and, um, and particularly the prime female of paradise to such a point that the Huri becomes the most active, the active figure who speaks or beckons to the believer. Um, who introduces the believer to his palace or his ground. So you have a kind of narrative development that happens um, over several centuries. Within that narrative development, and again, kind of outside of that kind of theological, um, those theological genres, you also have in the Fadal and Jihad traditions um, much more formulaic ways of designating the huri or marriage to the huri's as being a reward for um, a reward for battle, and so the cosmic marriage of the huri the has its own kind of temporal and spatial framework. So that seeing the huri uh, before death or seeing the huri in a garden before battle kind of signals um, a particular intention, but also signals a kind of in between state between um, earthly lived experience and, and what is promised afterwards. What I think that's really interesting in those traditions is that the Huri becomes even more formulaic. So you don't necessarily have descriptions that ambiguity is not there. All you have is this invocation of marriage as a reward And I I think it's interesting that some of these traditions also um, describe Christians who are so, you know, overjoyed with seeing this magnificent female figure um, on earth that they too convert. So, you know, it's one of those places like when I noticed uh, Rebecca was a in Ivanhoe that you have this kind of crossing of, um, I guess... uh, Uh, traditional or or constructed religious um, lines and cosmologies. Beyond that, you also have mentions of the Huri in um, literatures like Al-Jahed's Risalat Al-Qiyan, which talks about sinking slave girls and invokes traditions, um, the kind of um, aesthetics of the Huri, but also suggests that it could be possibly the other way around that traditions of the Hori are literally being inscribed in some of, um, on the bodies of some of the singing slave girls. So there's something really interesting that's happening um, in the, that kind of literature as well that's suggesting that in lived historical experience, there was this kind of play with the idea um, and some of the symbols that were associated with the Hori.
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: Moving to um, another uh, genre where you um, analyze uh, this category, which is more contemporary um, uh, articulations of uh, the Huri and place its place in Muslim eschatology in the present moment through things like uh, you know cassettes and the internet and through uh, the voices of what one might call popular preachers. I wanted to focus on one particular figure that I found particularly fascinating in this latter segment of uh, your book, uh, the famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, um, uh, Anwar al-Awlaki and the way that he mobilized this category of the Huri. Um how, Could you uh, talk a bit about uh, him and his understanding? And in this segment, you also make, of course, a very important point about the media that people like him employed uh, in transmitting their message. And why, the, why is that media also very important? To your point, to your argument in this in this part of your book.
0: Yeah, the, this part of the book, um, you know, it 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 is uh, it is more you know exploratory in nature because um, what I do in this part of the book is I start looking at um, videos. Uh, particularly YouTube videos of which um, many um, are are no longer accessible so you know i've I've archived the ones that i've I've worked on and what these videos do is they offer what I call tours of paradise. so earlier I talked about the eschatological manuals as this kind of precursor of a, a narrative that takes someone through different levels of Paradise and, and Hellfire, um, and shows you know what is significant about the different levels of uh, different punishments and the different rewards. But what I found with the YouTube videos is that they were creating the same kind of narrative for a digital age. And these tours of Paradise um, became kind of platforms for preaching. Um, they're also platforms for developing What scholars have really focused on is affective ties in digital communities, and um, the tours of the paradise can can range, um, and I cover I I do cover a range of them in in the book. Why Andra Alaki is so interesting um, is that his tours of paradise were were quite developed um, in this kind of um, multi series volume. And um, and in these volumes, um, he discusses the huri and the kind of capacity of the huri as a reward, as one of these rewards of paradise. And in, in one of the passages, um, what he does is he talks about a text um, by Ibn al-Nahas, uh, one particular section, um, which is part of a larger piece in his own Ibn Nahas' writings about what stops you from going on jihad. And one of the, you know, one of the, the queries is, you know, the affection you have for your wife. And so Ibn Nahas has, has this kind of um, uh, dialectic he has within this section where he shows that the the capacity and the constitution of the Huri is so much more superlative than the wife. So this you know, text from the 15th century Anwar Laki takes and kind of folds it into his Tours of Paradise. And, and what's really remarkable about it is, you know, the, the ways that in the kind of multiple representations of these tours, you have the images that are associated with them. Um, and so it becomes, you know, two interesting things come out of these very dynamic YouTube videos First is this kind of present, presentation of earlier text and exposition of them. But second of all is um, through the visualization of that argument and, and using the kind of techniques in the YouTube video that you can um, or he made kind of connections with uh, more kind of contemporary practices. So that is to say, he uses the category of the Huri both as a kind of um, commentator, but also invoking um, what becomes, you know, the twentieth and twenty-first century jihad movements. What was interesting for me as I was studying many of these videos um, is if we focused on the video itself as a text, um, we could do a formal analysis, which is basically what I do in the chapter. But at the same time, if you recognize that the site itself is not static, that it is constantly in movement and you're seeing what's popping up, what's on the right-hand column in movement, you could see that even for him in particular, his more, um, his uh, explanations or expositions that aligned with more classical uh, explanations of the Hori, Um, would be accompanied with, uh, you know, jihadi material, you know, that was invoking affective ties, using the huri as a way to develop kind of community, and, you know, using representations of um, empire, for example, often through like video game imagery. So there was something very interesting happening not just in his lectures but how those lectures were getting reformulated taken down um, put up in a, some other form um, that I, I found it to be very dynamic and, and quite significant
2: now you end the book um, on a very interesting question the first as, as you mentioned in the book that the first chapter is about um, uh, American responses to the question of what did Muhammad Atta receive Um and you end the question with this very intriguing, uh, the, the end the book rather, with this very intriguing question of uh, what do women receive uh, in the afterlife or afterworld? Um, not to collapse the dist- very fine distinction that you make between the two. Uh, and and you again go through some very interesting voices in contemporary Islam, uh, a range of different voices and how they how they uh, respond to that question. And you lay that out very clearly for the readers under particular subsections of, you know, what do different groups of Muslims uh, scholars um uh, say about that um uh, uh, again could you perhaps uh, uh, share with our listeners maybe a few of these major trends or differences in terms of what the woman received how that question is addressed
0: yes and it's a it's an important question you know earlier i i invoked the question that you see in the um even in the medieval sources which is you know what is a houri and what are her characteristics But when I, you know, found myself talking about the Hori with public audiences and also researching um, contemporary discourse, the question, the main question, the important question is what do women receive? And in this sense, this final chapter is paired with that first chapter to say that there is a vibrant scriptural interpretation Um, if you are looking at the right question. And so that question of what do women receive, um, that's why in the chapter, I wanted to make it as direct as possible and to lay out some of the possible answers. Um, And so that could be misogyny, eternity with uh, one's husband, a higher status uh, than the horis or male horis. And I think what's really interesting about the range of answers is that they they assume a different principle of equality so if equality is understood as sameness then women as Fatima Mirnesssi would argue receive a kind of misogyny as do as she argues in her work women in and Muslim paradise that all women and all religious cosmologies receive misogyny. Paradises are designed for men. They're not designed for women, but if the principle of equality recognizes some capacity of difference or parity, a, a, a parity of reward, not equal reward, then you either have an interpretation that suggests, um, that, you know, you, you get what you want in paradise. Everyone, um, everyone has the capacity to feel joy and happiness and they get what they need. Or that, um, or that, if you see the principle of equality as being, um, you know, equality is in sameness, you either get the the argument that there can be true companionship. So focusing on the particular characteristics and gender of that companionship is, um, is, is not as significant as the meaning of companionship itself, or um, what I was, I was surprised to read the possibility of male hurries as well. What's so fascinating to me about the range of those answers is this kind of question of what do women receive in and how those interpretations play out. Because I don't, I don't think you would you don't see that kind of question in the earlier sources. So for example in sources from you know the 800s you you have questions about what is the placement of women, you know, if they've had multiple husbands or their fiance died, you know, who will they be paired with? Who will be the eternal companion? Yet those questions never assume the possibility of um, the language, a kind of more modern language about equality. And so I think the nature of the question and how it shifts in the 21st century is really remarkable.
2: So Naree, as as a final uh, question about this book, um, I just realized I didn't give a chance uh, because the individual chapters are so fascinating and interesting. We just jumped right into it. But as a final question, perhaps if I could have you take a step back Um, how would you describe to the listeners sort of the main sort of take-home point that you want to communicate to the readers in terms of the contribution of your book to the study of Islam, um, you know, Muslim um, uh, uh, representations of Islam, um, study of religion, more broadly speaking. So how how would you describe uh, the sort of couple of major take-home points in terms of what you've tried to do in this book uh, uh, to the readers and listeners?
0: I think The way that I I would articulate it is that in the figure of the huri, we see a feminine figure who is so useful that the meaning of the huri cuts across time, cannot be contained by periodization or genre. And even you know expands beyond the idea of what is Islamic, and what is not Islamic, and so it's particularly figures like this that allow us to take a more expansive um, approach in Islamic studies, but also allows us to to look at what I see as the kind of one of the fundamental themes that cuts across so many of the genres and the methods employed in this book which is different ways of articulating asymmetries of power um, within text about men and women and trying to understand that uh, within the framework of a cosmology where women offer so so much in terms of a, a model for ethics a model for aesthetics um, and are are so useful that that model gets conflated with earthly women. And so in that sense, I think really what I try to do in these different chapters, and Sher Ali, you you were quick to pick up, you know, that every chapter not only has a different genre, but it has a different method to explore that genre, that that the figure of the Huri has compelled across time it has compelled across genre, and um, the book is a as a way to explain how.
2: Well, as we come to the end of our time, uh, Narina, could you uh, talk to us a bit about what the next project might be?
0: Well, uh, the next project is, you know, I've spent um I've spent some time thinking about, the the material, the relationship between the material and the spiritual, not only in terms of Islamic studies and religious studies, but also in terms of the historical discipline, that relation between material culture and intellectual history. And um, ha- having done that, you know, I myself want to go into a slightly different direction. And I have to say, you know, as I was thinking about this question, I... I've never been able to to my satisfaction answer the question that everyone asks each other which is what do you work on. You know, in the early part of my career, I you know, would identify my languages and my periods and that didn't seem, you know, satisfactory. And that in another point in my career, I would list what I consider to be my historical methodologies, cultural or intellectual history and that was lacking specificity. At a certain point, I just gave up and I said, you know, I just work on whatever I want to. And that was just dodging the question. And so it's really through the project, um, this Hori project, that I was able to articulate that what animates me is this intersection of politics and aesthetics. And going forward, I'm going to be turning more to the aesthetics and, and getting back to the the medieval roots to, so to say, my hands in the dirt and, and looking at more social, um, social, uh, biological, and technical histories.
2: Thank you uh, so much, Narina, for your time and for this conversation and uh, for this really uh, wonderful book uh, that I'm sure not only will spark many conversations and debates uh, in the study of Islam, but will also make uh, for an excellent text to teach. In undergraduate and graduate courses, it's really um, exquisitely written. Uh, It's a really, really uh, difficult material, but has been presented in really accessible and lucid ways. So, thank you so much uh, for your time today.
0: Thank you for your questions and and thank you for this wonderful conversation.
2: So, this was my conversation with Professor Narina Rustumji about her wonderful new book the beauty of the hoodie. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I hope you will join us next time also for another fresh episode of NBIS. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.